Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Hershey Felder, who is the creator, performer, author of Chopin in Paris, which is playing at TheaterWorks Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts, August 19th through September 11th. Hershey Felder has been performing various shows 28 years. There are over 6,000 performances. Among the composers that he's impersonated, Gershwin, Beethoven, Leonard Bernstein, Franz Liszt, Irving Berlin, Tchaikovsky. There's also a Paris love story and Lincoln, an American story. He's also a composer. He produced and directed The Pianist of Williston Lane. I interviewed you several years ago for George Gershwin. First, let's talk a little bit about Chopin in Paris. Now, this was originally Monsieur Chopin, and you performed during the pandemic via Zoom, I think? No, I produced films. So we had a platform whereby the films that were either live, some produced live, the first set was produced live in the first season, and then after we went to full-fledged feature films, are on our platform, hersheyfelder.net, and distributed throughout the world. So I, I never performed on Zoom. I did interviews on Zoom with, uh, how shall we say, uh, audiences and so on and so forth, but a performance, no. They're all available. All those performances, there are, I think, 18 films at this point, and we're in the middle of editing a new one, which is Chopin, but it's Chopin List, so it's a little bit different than the, the one you would be seeing in Mountain View. How can you get them? At hersheyfelder.net, my name, H-E-R-S-H-E-Y-F-E-L-D-E-R.net, and uh, we have the exclusive rights to all these films, so that's kind of nice. Let's talk a little bit about this particular production. You went from Monsieur Chopin to Chopin in Paris. What are the differences between the two productions? Well, when I develop a piece even further, which I have with this one, because I don't think these pieces can really stagnate, they need to continue going and developing. Sometimes I'll change the title uh, so as not to confuse the fact that it's an old show or a new show or or nothing has changed and it's a show you saw seven years ago or whatever. So this one has developed since the last one and uh, there are different sequences and a different plot point. And so with that said, I think it's important to change the name, not to mislead the public that they're seeing something that they already saw and that should be the same and isn't. Are there different pieces performed then? There are several different pieces performed and there are several plot points that have changed. And there's also a whole different aspect to the, how shall we say, the interactive part. Let's go back and talk about the creation of all your shows and this one in particular. First of all, how do you pick the composer? Well, it depends. Sometimes the composer is picked for me, depending in the early days when the theater wanted to see a particular artist or composer. 
then they're the ones that I want to do and I propose them. And then they're the ones that are popular with the public and people say you have to do them. So it, it really depends. There's not a rhyme or reason or a rule to any of it. And I think the other important thing is that uh, it keeps on developing. You know, I have plans for future, not necessarily composers, but future products and future plays and storytelling and films, mainly films that uh, feature various aspects of the arts in different ways. Once the composer has been chosen, once you've figured out, okay, this is what I'm going to do, what is the next step? Is it listening to the various pieces, knowing what you already know and throwing it in there? Is it looking for the story? What comes next? And in the case of Chopin, we're talking about a piano lesson. Most of these stories are based on something that actually happened. No, all of them are based on something that actually happened, I, I think I can be safe to say. And they are based in a concept whereby I can be with an audience and portray the story. So there are a lot of questions that have to be answered, mainly three, which is, what is the story being told? Who is telling the story? And who is the story being told to? And if you can answer those three questions, then you can go further. But it always starts with knowledge about the composer and knowledge about about the compositions. And, you know, it doesn't start with, uh, oh, let's do him and when then throw a bunch of compositions at a wall and see what works. It always starts with the knowledge first and then goes into being developed. Because if you don't know what you're developing or don't know enough about what you intend to develop, inadvertently, you're going to take a wrong, a wrong turn. So what brought you to saying, okay, this is a piano lesson in 1848? Because it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was giving a lot of salons over that period of time, right? No. Uh, actually, in 1848, he was quite ill and he was quite weak and he was not doing a ton of teaching and not doing a ton of um, salon appearances, as, as you refer to them. He wasn't playing concerts for sure. There were a few, but that was about it. So by that point, he was already toward the end. He was only a year away from dying. So, you know, it, it's what happens in the period of that year that is relevant to our story. So how did you find out that this piano lesson existed? It is, is it in all his biographies then? No, it's based on an event that actually happened. And it's not that it's all in his biographies. It's that something happened before this piano lesson that uh, is known about. And I thought that was a very good way into the piano lesson. Okay, so now you've decided there's going to be a piano lesson or whatever it is on the different shows. At that point, you have to create a narrative and you have to insert the songs and deal with audience interaction. Uh, what does your first draft look like then? Yeah, what first drafts look like unfinished. <laughs> you know, it's a long process. The process is not just a first draft where you write it and sort of do it and change a few lines. It's really part of a very active process, especially when it's uh, one person talking to an audience, the audience is integral in figuring out how it works. So there are a lot of, a lot of um, trial and effort in terms of first in your living room with friends and then uh, with a larger public. And then you go in front of the public and the press and you figure even further. The process never ends. And I think that's what's important. How do you find the voice? I mean, in some cases, obviously, with Gershwin or, or Bernstein, you could listen to recordings and determine what's going to be 
them and what's going to be you. In the case of both of those, when you're on stage, in some sense, I see the composer. I don't see Hershey Felder. In the case of Chopin, though, you don't know what he sounded like. I actually do know what he sounded like because, there's, of course, there is a description in um, Delacroix's diary, the painter Delacroix's diary, of both his accent and what he sounded like. So, you know, of course, it's not a recording, but then again, my stage, Bernstein and Gershwin and anybody's, you know, character presentation on the stage doesn't sound exactly like the person because that then just becomes kind of a an imitation. I think the goal of the actor is to create an evocation of the character where all aspects are believable and that it's not just let me imitate the sound of the guy the way he sounded on a record. In fact, I tend to feel, and I don't know if I'm alone in this or not, but I tend to feel when I go to theater pieces or films and I see somebody doing that kind of imitation, I actually land up thinking about how close they are to imitating what the person sounded like on a recording rather than just listening to what they're saying as a character. And it's a very complicated thing and I think a very fine line. And you spend your life trying to figure out how to do it and do it properly, but it's a lot based on imagination and evocation. I mean, one can listen to a Polish person speaking today, understand exactly what Chopin would have sounded like, and that's what one creates. A Polish person speaking in French in Paris, but in English using that kind of accent. It's all really very colorful, but it works. Where did the director, Joel Zwick, come in? Well, Joel, when I did the first play, Joel hasn't been with this play for a while, but when I did the first play, you know, I present Joel my ideas. He was very brilliant. He is still a very brilliant director, but he was on this a brilliant director and that he allows me to explore and then asks me what I'm looking to achieve and then say, you are achieving that or you're not achieving that. One of the things that Joel is the best at is being an audience and he can come at a performance every day fresh, even though he's seen it 400 times or whatever and be able to tell you you're accomplishing what you set out to do or you're not. You need to continue exploring. I think that's the best kind of direction because he really, I don't want to use the word forces, he allows, he engenders the the excitement about learning and, and exploration. And I think you can only become a better artist if you explore. I don't know that you become a much better artist if you're consistently told exactly what to do and you and you do it. That's a very different kind of, of exploration of art. And it's valid. It's just not what, what I feel is best for this kind of process. Uh, he's primarily a film director. He's done a lot of stage. Uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding is his. How do you think his work on film helps you specifically, or does it? I don't think it makes any difference. Uh, I've been... I've been doing films myself. And I think each one is a medium that you learn and you understand. And it's, it, it really is constant exploration. And I haven't worked on this piece with Joel in 12 years. So it's a long time since since Monsieur Chopin actually premiered, although he came to a recent run in Los Angeles and said, you're accomplishing what you've set out to accomplish. I like this. I like that. Take a look at this moment and so on and so forth. But he hasn't actually worked on this piece for a long time. You know, he's a very brilliant director, and the lessons you learn early on, you never forget. When you're coming back to something, do you go back to your films, or do you want to just start fresh? 
No, I have, I'm very lucky, whatever that means, and that I have a, a memory that is very retentive and I can literally go back into a piece and find it where I left it. But for me, that always gives me a point of departure for refinding what it is I'm looking for and also advancing the cause to make it better the next time. So points of reference, because I've done it so much on the stage, thousands of performances, I literally have sense memory that when I'm actually doing something that my physical, my whole physical being descends into where I last left off and I can begin from there. Even it's been years, I hadn't done Chopin. It was the last live performance I actually did before the pandemic, which was let me see if I remember the date. It was January 21st, 2020 in in New York. That was the last live performance. Then I came home to rehearse and then I you know, landed up doing two years worth of movies. And when I went back to it to prepare for Los Angeles, which is where I've just finished a run, I literally was able to start exactly where I left off. It's just when you spend your life doing that, uh, which I have, it's 29 years being on stage, you really have a lockbox of memory of the work you've done and you go and you open it and you begin to work. And I haven't stopped working through any of it. So my mechanism, thinking mechanism anyway, is still as much in order as one could possibly hope at this point in my life. Do you think that memory that you're talking about, that almost physical memory, is the same kind of memory as when you're playing a piece on the piano? I think it's kind of the same sort of well, feel. Well, I, I don't know because uh, I'm not a specialist in the field. I can only tell you my experience, but my experience is that it's all encompassing and it requires all the parts of your brain, the physical to connect to the emotional, to the presentational, to the, um, you know, the active uh, thinking that uh, always has to be razor sharp. I can say some of my friends experienced during the pandemic when they got back to performing got live on stage that they felt that their synapses weren't firing as quickly as they needed to fire. And I think that could have been, no, actually I didn't, I didn't find that. I was able to immediately uh, perform again, but then again, I didn't stop performing. Just I wasn't performing as much as I, I had before the pandemic and still doing things regularly. Uh, during. So, uh, you know, I think it's all encompassing. It's a lifetime's work. It can't be compartmentalized into this is the memory I have today or, you know, and uh, so I'm going to begin working on this or I'm going to pull that out. It's really a lifetime of cumulative work on this kind of physical piano playing, thinking through lines, through playing, through presentation, through writing, through character, all of it. Hershey Felder, since you mentioned the pandemic, and it all obviously affected us, particularly that first year. How did you find out about it? How did you deal with having to cancel performances? What was Florence like in those early days? Because Italy was hit very hard. It was like everywhere. I think everybody was devastated. But I think in terms of Italy, one of the things that happened here is that people took it very, very seriously and very quickly. They realized this is no joke. and one of the things about Italy that is very relevant is that this is a place whereby family is the most important. Everything is family oriented. Your family is your circle, your bubble. It's not quite like the United States where people go to another a state or they move far away or they go to university here and there. This is a place where people come home. 
and you come home and you pretty much stay home the rest of your life unless your job takes you to another part of the world. People are not running away from their homes and their families in Italy. It's very much so family oriented. And so when the first people who started to die and get very sick were grandparents, I think this deeply affected people in Italy in a very, very strong way. And they realized they need to take this seriously and very quickly. And they did, which spared us from a lot of headache that happened again and again, but like everywhere, you know, you you stopped for two seconds and all of a sudden it started again. And, you know, who knows what will be? I think we just have to be vigilant and careful and not stop living. We must continue to live, but we need to be vigilant and careful at the same time. So in the early days, you were pretty much staying at home with your family. I wasn't pretty much staying at home with my family. We we were not allowed to go out of our out of our comune, so we were only allowed to go to the grocery shop in our little village. We were not allowed to go anywhere else. And if you have to cross a village border, which would be the same thing as saying going four blocks in Manhattan, you have to have documents and statements and so on and so forth. But you know, I think we're all glad to see those days. I don't think. I know we're all glad to see those days in the past, but it taught us a lot about community, about friendships, about the fact that we're strong and we can handle. And hopefully it taught us a lot about caring about our neighbors and friends. Hershey Felder, let's go back a little bit. What was the first show of this sort that you did? It was George Gershwin alone, and it got very well known uh, very early on. And the first performance was in 1998. How did you come up with that particular show and at what point did you realize let me try a different composer i always wanted to do chopin first because uh, it's the most natural pianistically for me and uh it was actually joel who said to me you need to find a more contemporary composer because americans are not going to follow you nobody knows who you are nobody knows what you do nobody cares you're going to have to find something whereby people genuinely care about the music to begin with he said why don't you try gersh when you play the rhapsody in blue and so that's how it actually started so chopin was always there yes from the very beginning mm -hmm. After that, at what point did you actually do Chopin? Was Chopin the next or Bernstein? Uh, how did this go? It was Gershwin for God knows how many years, something like Gershwin. The first Gershwin ran for eight years, still does, but it, I, I just recently did it in Italian live. That was fun. Then Chopin started in 2006. Beethoven premiered in 2009, Bernstein premiered in 2010, Liszt premiered in 2011, uh, 2012 saw, oh my goodness, I mean, uh, 2013, no, 2014 was Berlin, 2000, so it's, it's just like this, 2015 was Tchaikovsky, 2016 and 17 was Debussy, um, then 2018, I mean, and so it's been nonstop. And then they play in repertory. I, as I said, I've played Gershwin. Gershwin was created 26 years ago, and I recently played it. For you, what are the shows that you, I mean, obviously you love all of the shows, but is there any show that kind of goes, okay, this is going to be more fun? The one that I'm doing when I'm doing it, because it has to be that kind of responsibility. If you don't really give everything and your whole heart and soul to each one that you do every time you're in front of an audience, and even when you're rehearsing it, it sort of becomes a pointless exercise and a senseless one. So, you know, I think leaving a show and doing another show 
I've been doing this in repertory for so long. Literally, sometimes Sunday night was one and Tuesday night was another. Sometimes there were there was one time that there were three shows literally in repertory, going one from the next in in a cycle in in a week. Um, there was once that I did three different shows in one day, you know, and in front of an audience. So this is this is the kind of thing that has happened my whole performing life, and that's okay. I would assume that the difficulty then between one show and another might well just be the the pieces you're playing, do you think? The difficulty between one show and another is that each show requires 1,000%. So it is a very difficult thing to be able to rehearse one during the day and perform another at night and then suddenly switch. The act of switching is not because I'm well prepared and I know what I'm doing and I've spent my life, you know, working on this craft. It's just tiring. It's physically very, very demanding. So you have to be on point all the time and you have to give it your best because the audience is paying their fee. And if an audience pays, if even one person pays, you have to give everything you have. And so the demanding part is the responsibility, not the playing this or that piece. That goes without saying. It's it's the other stuff, the stuff that you have to be there's no phoning it in. You don't get to uh, relax tonight because, well, it's a composer whose music is less hard to play. It doesn't work like that. Hershey Felder, what's the difference for you between performing it for a film and then doing it in front of an audience? An audience is linear. So you get to develop your character from the beginning to the end. You understand where you're going at the beginning and how you're going to get to the end. A film is never, if if it's a movie, as opposed to a capture of a stage play or something, it's never, if ever, filmed in order. And even if it is filmed in order, you're repeating scenes on one day and the next day brings something else. And you have to really observe your through line and so on and so forth. And something you're jumping from here to there to wherever, and you have to imagine the arc of your character. So it's very hard. And yet at the same time, it offers you the opportunity to review, to look, to think, to edit, to do all kinds of things that you simply cannot do on the stage because once the moment is passed, it's gone. So you might get a chance to try different things in multiple takes like anybody does in the film. Yes, and, 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 and one does. And then again, I, I'm good fortune that I've been able to play my shows in multiple takes, so to speak, you know, many years. Um, so I, as I said, the idea of being able to continuously develop and never letting things stagnate is a very important thing to me. When you were in the throes of the pandemic, how did you keep up the idea that you're going to be in front of an audience again? It sounds to me like a really tough thing to do. I didn't keep up the idea or it was more relevant to be able to keep the people who have been with me for years employed and keep some of the theaters that I had performed with, um, with incoming funds because I was donating a lot of the income from all these films to theaters and to artists. And there were a lot of artists who were suffering terribly and I, I tried to help as best as I could. And I think, you know, there was a, there was a point to all of this. And so I didn't really think about, oh my God, this is hard. Oh my God, am I going to be in front of an audience? That never figured as part of, of the situation because there was a, a more important thing to address, which was helping people who really uh, needed help, some of whom needed to eat. 
During that period, is that when you created Live from Florence, an arts broadcasting company? Live from Florence was created for the first broadcast, which was Berlin. Um, at first, everybody was doing Zoom, and I said, I can't do it this way. I have to do it as a real broadcast. And so I was very lucky. Nobody in Florence was working. Nobody in Rome was working. So I was able to gather a film crew just out of lockdown, literally days out of the first lockdown. I said, just show up here and we're going to see if we can do this. And that's how it worked. And so Live from Florence was born. Was it done in your home then? Uh, studios, home, around the city, all kinds of things. Theaters. How far are you from Florence? I'm looking at the Duomo as we're speaking, so not that far. And the hills of Tuscany, it's you go two feet this way and it's in a village. So, no, I, I, I overlooked the Duomo from one of the hills of Florence. Hershey Felder, after Chopin, uh, have you started work specifically on another composer? I mean, I assume you're working on several at the moment. Yes, I, I, I have several things coming up. Plus, there's the uh, we have, I think, four films before the end of the season or three, four. I don't even remember anymore. Um, we're just completing Chopin that gets launched in uh, in a week's time. What about Rachmaninoff? I created the film of Rachmaninoff last season. It closed out our season last year, and it's been a popular film. It's quite it's quite a moving story, and of course, complicated in these times because of Russia. Have you performed that in front of audiences too? No, because it was scheduled to be performed in the year 2020, but there were no performances, so I turned it into a movie. What other movies that have not been um in front of live audiences. Puccini has never been in front of a live audience. Uh, before Fiddler about Sholom Aleichem has not been in front of an audience. Rachmaninoff has not been in front of an audience. Dante has not been in front of an audience. Verdi has not been in front of an audience. And Mozart and Figaro has not been in front of an audience. Do you plan to, uh, to do those eventually in front of audiences? Well, they're not solo shows. They're big movies. So um, it would have to be totally restructured. And that's doable, but, you know... But I think for now, no. When you're creating these, what kind of research do you do? Where do you look? And specifically, did it make a difference in being stuck in Florence during the pandemic in your creative process in terms of finding the facts and doing the research? Well, I think the term stuck in Florence is something that is, uh, you know, uh, not exactly a bad thing. One should be stuck in Florence if one, if one needs to be stuck anywhere. It's the center of the Renaissance. It's the center of art. Even Tchaikovsky was here. He lived here. I filmed the film in his house here in Florence. So, you know, I mean, these are things that are uh being in florence was uh, you know unbelievably inspirational you know it's the kind of place anywhere you point a camera it's beautiful and it's true and so many artists have been puccini was here you know he wrote about a bridge in florence uh, ponte vecchio verdi had been here in fact the, th the theater from which i broadcast george gershwin alone in the live performance from was the site of the premiere of verdi's otello the teatro della pergola in, in the center of florence verdi stood on that stage and organized how that's supposed to go so you know i mean hardly a bad thing here i'd say in fact it's it's much more rich and easy to find things that you need not to mention going to places that actually is where they work now in terms of the information 
it's like any research information, we have the advantage of the internet nowadays. So you can actually really um, access anything you need and what you can't access live, a book or so on and so forth, you can order and it comes to you. And the other thing that is interesting is once you go down that rabbit hole of research, you can continue going because we live in a time where so much more information is accessible uh, just via the internet that you learn a whole lot more and then you have to decipher what's real and what's not and what's worthy of attention and what isn't but there's a whole lot more access whereas in the old days you go to this and that library you had 10 biographies and you would take them all out and now you have papers and essays and and real information and family volumes and articles and so there's all kinds of ways that you can find information so I don't think in terms of that we're really stuck anywhere but if one is to be stuck being stuck in Tuscany is not a bad thing. I guess all of that research going down those rabbit holes gives you the opportunity to retune and refine the various shows, which I guess in a way always keeps them fresh. Well, what keeps them fresh is the commitment to keeping them fresh. You just can't ever get lazy with them. And in terms of the information, you're quite right. You know, you keep on learning and there's always something new and interesting that you can add and incorporate. You've been listening to an interview with Hershey Felder, whose play Chopin in Paris runs August 19th through September 11th at Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts. To see these films, go to hersheyfelder.net. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 